Hi, I'm Mark, and welcome to Talk to the Band, the podcast that is passionate about contemporary music. Our guest this week is a UK guitarist whose performance and recording credits include Elkie Brooks and Joe Cocker. He has previously worked for Chandler Guitars, Korg, Line 6 and Fender, and he is currently the international sales manager for Sir Guitars Amps and Pedals. A warm welcome to Nigel Spenwing. Hi, Nigel. Thanks for being on the show today. It's a pleasure. Yeah, looking forward to it. So let's start at the beginning. How did you start playing guitar? I guess my parents saw something. I used to tie a piece of string around a tennis racket and a mime to uh, Sunday night's top 20 tunes on the radio. I hear you knocking. I can remember that tune by Dave Edmonds. I hear you knocking. And they they said, well, what do you want for Christmas? I was 10. And I said, I want, I want a train set. So I'm like, okay, which I did. And uh, when I woke up Christmas Day morning, in my bedroom was this triangle-shaped box. And my father, uh, bless him, no longer with us, uh, his sense of humor, he'd written on it in black Sharpie, Nigel's train set. I was like, wow. So I opened the box and there was a guitar in it. And if I'm honest, I was really disappointed, you know. <laughs> I wanted a train set, and I got a, a classical nylon-strung acoustic guitar. And then I just, you know, started playing that. I, I had no idea how to tune it, and I took it to school, and this teacher whose name that escapes me now tuned it and showed me how to play dun, 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 in E, you know, like blues in E. And that, yeah. and that was it. I was kind of hooked. Can we talk about Chandler Guitars? When did you work for them? That was... The very beginning, it was like January the 2nd or 3rd, 1990. You know, I look back on those years. I, I was there just over four years. I look back, you know, with really great memories. It was a really good time. It, at that time, Chandler Guitars was, I believe, the guitar store in Europe. Uh, we were the importer for Paulie Smith Guitars before they had a distributor in the UK, um, Taylor Guitars, Sardona, uh, yeah, Sardona Amps, Rivera. Tom Anderson, a whole list of mm. what are now household names, really, but at the time were kind of high-end boutique brands that you couldn't get anywhere else. Yeah. And consequently, that shop attracted many stars. And before, obviously, I knew I was coming on today, so I made a list. <laughs> of, I was thinking, you know, who were regular customers? And it's quite amazing, really. People like, uh, and these are in no, just as my memory came, you know, as, as it came to me, so uh, Dave Gregory from XTC, John Clark, who was Cliff Richards' guitar player, who's an mm. incredible guitar player. The guys from Right Said Fred used to come in all the time. Roland Orzabal, Tears for Fears. Robin Guthrie from the Cocteau Twins. Tim Rennick, you know, famous session guy. Uh, Mickey Moody, Scott Gorham, film and engineer. Gary Moore, Ian Benson, who, if you're not familiar with Ian, he's the guy who played the guitar solo on Kate Bush's Wuthering Heights. Mm. He was also the guitar player in Pilot and the Alan Parsons Project, and in my opinion, is criminally underrated. He's an amazing musician. Guys that you would never really know their faces, but now the guys who play on things like Strictly, like John Paracelli, Paul Dunn, other session guys like Alan Darby, Les Davidson, Paul Stacey, Doug Boyle, who at the time was playing with Robert Plant, again, is an amazing guitar player, and people like, you know, James Taylor, I remember walking in, you know, James Taylor, my God, just walked into the store one day. 
Um, Jimmy Page was in. Prince never came in but was a customer. Sting never came in but was a customer, who I was fortunate to meet. Phil Taylor, who's Dave Gilmore's guy and, and still is. Graham Lilly, who's Gary Moore's guy. Lee Dixon at the time looked after Eric Clapton. Alan Rogan, who sadly left us, I think, last year, who was Pete Townsend's and uh, George Harrison and, you know, the incredibly uh, famous guitar tech. So, yeah, it was a great place to be. And whenever a band was playing Hammersmith Odeon, which was 20 minutes away by car, they would quite often, you know, arrive soundcheck or sometimes they might need something or there might be an issue with a bit of gear and they'd dispatch somebody over to the shop to kind of pick up something. And, and quite often I put on the guest list, do you want to come? And I got, I got to see loads of, of bands during that period. It was, it was a really good time. And I really enjoyed working with, uh, you know, Doug, his wife, Paula, uh, Charlie Chandler, who's he's still uh, has his store over in uh, Hampton Wick. who's a great repair guy. And, uh, and, and all the crew there, it was a really good time. Yeah. Really good time. So you mentioned a couple of names, including Jimmy Page. Did you actually get to meet him? Uh, I did meet Jimmy. I've dined out on this story many times. <laughs> I can honestly say I have had a guitar lesson from Jimmy Page. I remember being told Jimmy was going to come in. His tech was a guy called Lionel. And Lionel came to the store and said, look, Jimmy uh, is going to Japan on tour with David Coverdale, the Coverdale Page thing they did. But he's not happy with the back pickup in his Les Paul, and he wants to me to come in and um, can we hire your demo room which in the cellar downstairs we had like a soundproof room he wants me to bring all of his gear in so the entire jimmy's back line and we want to put a different pickup in and then he tries it and then he br- we bring the guitar upstairs to give to charlie chandler in the workshop and he would swap out a pickup for another one go back down and do and do this again until he finds something he's happy with so we were like yeah of course you know it's no problems uh, on on the day, Lionel turns up in the morning with a van and we help him down, we settle the gear up. And then around midday, uh, Jimmy sort of falls out of a taxi outside. And, I, you know, I I was a little starstruck, but I tried to be really cool. You know, he didn't really hang around much. He sort of went downstairs and could hear him playing. And uh, then Lionel would come up with a guitar, give it to Charlie. So whilst Charlie was doing that, Jimmy would just sort of hang around. And Doug was saying, Nigel, go, go show Jimmy around the store. Go, on, go and push, push, you know. So, okay, so I go over, hey, Jimmy, how's it going? Yeah, good, blah, 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 what are you up to? And, you know, chit-chat. That was that, and then he went back down, and the next time he came up, I think he went next door to the pub and had lunch, and then he came back, and he went back downstairs and tried some more pickups, and anyway, he came up. By that time, I'd relaxed a bit. Yeah. I was talking to him, and I said, look, I'm going to really blow my professional call here because, you know, I'm a massive fan, and I doubt I'll ever have this opportunity again. How did you play the Rain song? Right, because I mean, this was 90, 91, 92, something like that, maybe 93. And uh, again, pre-internet, you couldn't put up Rain song yeah. tab, you know? And I tried playing along with the records. And the studio version, I think, was in A or G. And the live version on Song Rain's the same was in the opposite, A or G, whichever it was. I just couldn't get it to sound right. So um, I said, to Jimmy, how'd you play it? So he said, okay, grab an acoustic guitar. So he grabbed an acoustic guitar. We sat down. And he went, well, the first thing is it's an open tuning, which everybody knows now. But then I didn't. It was like bing, light bulb, you know. Wow, it's an open tuning. Yeah. So, so he said, look, you tune it up to this, and then you do these chord shapes. And suddenly it's like all the right voicings and all the right inversions and 
And they were all kind of reasonably simple chord shapes, but just with the open tuning made the right noise. And, and yeah, that was an amazing moment for me to have a sort of little personal guitar lesson with my childhood hero. Yeah. While you were there, was there anyone else you got a chance to meet? Gary Moore's a regular and he was a big, you know, hero of mine as well. I loved the fire in his playing and and I still I still don't know whether there's anybody that could play over a minor blues feel the, the same way as as Gary. I remember doing a gig. I was a dep in a band in Dublin. There was a stopover and I I got put in a room with Don Airy, so clang name name drop, but he was in this band, right? He was the keyboard player. And we were rooming, and we had two single beds that were very close together. It was a bit like the Mork and Wise sketch with two guys in, you know, in their <laughs> pajamas. We went to bed, and um, you know, I said to him, "Don Airy, you know, you, I mean, you played with everybody, every amazing guitar player, pretty much. You know, Don Airy's been involved with. I got to ask you, who, in your opinion, was the best?" And he said, "Gary." And no hesitation, Gary, best guitar player. Yeah, he used to come in, you know, quite a bit. He had, obviously, Green is Les Paul, which he's famous for owning, but he had a, two others, 59 Les Pauls. One he didn't like much in, and he sold on, which was, I think, on the front cover of the, the second blues album, I think. But then the the other Les Paul, which sort of became known as the Still Got the Blues guitar because he used it a lot on that tour, which was a 59 burst with open black humbuckers, no covers. And they had no frets on it, really, and he, he wanted it refretted. So he brought it into Charlie. He was really nervous about it, as you'd, as you'd expect. You know, it's an expensive guitar. So Charlie refretted it. And Charlie used to, you know, say to me, if it was kind of, you know, really important job, he quite often Charlie would say, look, could you play this, you know, and let me know what you think? Because, you know, I want to make sure it's right. So I took Gary's guitar and there was no one else around in the shop. It was a quiet day. And in the middle of the store, there was this boogie amplifier, I remember, on an amp stand with a guitar stand next to it. And I plugged into this boogie, and it was summer. I remember that. The door was open, and uh, the guitar was loud, and I started playing. I still got the verse, right? So I just started, just got going, and the phone rang. And I was like, there's no one else around. Everybody was at lunch, I think. It was just me. I turned the guitar down, put the guitar on the stand. I walked over to the counter, picked up the telephone, and said, hello, Charlie Guitars. And as I said that, in walked Gary and Graham Lilly, his tech. And, God, my heart sank because I know that if somebody's playing guitar in the shop and the door's open, you can hear somebody playing guitar in that shop all the way down to Kew Gardens train station. <laughs> Seriously. So I, there's absolutely no way he wouldn't have heard that. I know he had bad tinnitus, but he would he would definitely have heard this. And I'm on the phone with this customer and Gary walked over to the guitar with Graham and they're both standing in front of it, looking at it and they're talking amongst themselves. And I, and Gary's body language was, it, it sucked. You know, he was not happy because the guitar looked like it was on display in, in the store. So uh, I finished my phone call and I went over and I knew Graham quite well. I was like, hi Graham, how's it going? Hey Gary, how you doing? And Gary cut straight to it. What's my guitar doing there? I said, I was just trying it. And, of course, that sounded terrible because it just sounded like I'm having a go on your guitar. So he said, who said you could try it? I said, well, uh, Charlie did. Why? I said, well, he, he's just refretted it. And I said, he's done a great job. And he was just asked after my, a second opinion. You know, what did I think it was, was okay? And he went, 
oh, what do you think? I said, well, I think it's, he's done an amazing job. I think it plays fantastic. If it was my guitar, I'd take the action up a little on the, on the high end, on the high strings. It's a bit hard to, to bend the strings up around the 12, 14 fret, but that's, you know, me. You may like it. So, right. So Graham kind of smoothing things over. Okay, well, let's get you plugged in, Gary. You know, you sit down. And we gave him 20 minutes. And he's playing in the store. And Gary's guitar playing in the store was always incredible. I, I, I think I probably preferred his playing in a guitar store than on stage. Why is that? Because he was more laid back? Um, yes. Yeah, I think Yes, definitely. I think comparing the two guys, I think the adrenaline, you know, and, and it's part of the thing that made him great. He was, you know, because he would get fired up and there's loads of energy. But he played in a different way, I felt. More jazzy, actually. Uh, anyway, so we gave him 20 minutes or so, half an hour, and I went over to him and I said, so how are you getting on? You know, so he went, yeah, he's great. He said he's done a great job. He said, but I, I think I want the action to come up a little bit on the high end. Yeah, yeah, sh such a shame. That was, uh, I can remember that yeah. day when I, I received that news, and, um, yeah, I was really upset, actually. Yeah, it was a big influence on me. The other great story from that from that time was the Prince story where um, he, he didn't come in, but he was playing Wembley and he'd, uh, he liked to finish the show by throwing one of his cloud guitars or whatever they're called. He'd throw it in the air and the lights would cut, right? So you never see the guitar hit the floor, but it would look like it would, but his roadie would catch it, I think, it was going, what was going on, and he missed. Anyway, the headstock came off. So his roadie came in. We just played Wembley at the weekend and opened the flight case and there's this guitar with a you know, broken headstock. We're playing Sheffield Arena is the next date in three days' time. Can you fix it? So Ian Allerton, who was one of the repair guys at Chandler's, big Prince fan, he said, I'll do it. You know, I'll do whatever it takes, I'll work day, night, you know, I'll get it done. And he did. He glued it up, got it dried, got it solid, got it painted, you know, resprayed. And come Wednesday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I think it was, we rang the, his roadie. Yes, it's ready. Great. We're in Sheffield. Can you bring it to the show? So Ian and I said, well, we'll take it. Yeah, you know, of course. <laughs> get to meet Prince. We drove all the way to Sheffield from New Gardens and uh, we got there at, I don't know what time, it was about five or so, five or six in the afternoon and uh, we got let in and they said, look, the, the band are on stage, they're rehearsing. You know, Prince was not happy with last night's show. He's had the band rehearsing since uh, soundcheck all the way through to Doors. So they did three hours. I think it was like four o'clock till seven till the Doors opened, rehearsing. So we got taken through into the production office. So there's myself and Ian, and there's on the floor is this flight case with the, the lid open. And we're waiting, and we're standing around waiting, waiting, you know, and eventually in walks Prince. Doesn't say anything. He walks straight up to us, gets down on the floor, picks his guitar up, picks it up, looks at it, looks at the back of the headstock, looks where the brake was, puts it back in the case, shuts the lid, turns around and walks out. That was it. And his tech said, he was like embarrassed really he was a bit like oh, look i'm really sorry you know he's obviously got a lot on his mind or but hey guy you guys want to stay in you know come and have dinner with the band so we, we had dinner with the band and then uh we had a couple of comps to stay and see the show and the show was incredible i mean that that man was i mean he danced yeah. amazing sang amazing he played guitar amazing he played piano he played drums he played bass it was the, the tour where he wore that hat with all the braids covering his face and mm. you sexy mother, that tour. 
Uh, and it was amazing, and you forgive him anything, you know. I quite liked it in a way. It was like, kind of like he was being a pop star, and I quite, I quite, I mean, it would have been nice had he said, "Hey guys, you know, thanks for bringing it up," you know. But that's okay. He's Prince, you know. Can you tell us about your time with Elkie Brooks? Yeah. So when I left Chalmers, I opened my own shop in Watford called Guitarland, and you know, it didn't work out uh, for various reasons. But anyway, it, it, we had to close close it down. And so uh, I was on my backside. I had no job. I had, you know, the shop was closed. I had a bit of debt. It, you know, I was literally head in my hands. What am I going to do next? And I got a phone call. Hello, love. It's Elkie Brooks here. And this gentle sort of northern voice. And I said, oh, hello. So I've been given your number by Paul Stacey. Oh, okay. So I need a guitar player. He can't do it. And he's put you forward. Wow. Okay. We've got a couple of, you know, a few shows. I said, oh, okay. When? She said, well, it's next week. I said, right, uh, where are they? She went, well, there's one in Darlington, I think, somewhere up north, and then and then we go to Jamaica. Went, Sorry? He said, yeah, we've got – so, yeah, I'm playing in, like, these five-star all-inclusive resorts for, I think it was, like, three weeks, and there was, like, only one gig a week. Um, and she told me the money, so uh, which was pretty good, pretty good money. And I was sitting there thinking, oh, my God, I've just come – you know, I was totally stressed. I mean, if I look at photographs of myself at that time, bags of black eyes, you know, black circles, and and somebody's just rung up and offered me essentially a five-star all-inclusive holiday in Montego Bay, uh, and I get to come home with money, and all I've got to do is learn a set list and do three gigs. So it's like, yes, <laughs> absolutely. So that's what we did. I did one. She sent me cassettes because this was, again, pre-email. Uh, um, I got cassettes of the set list. I learned that from home. I got to the first gig up north, which is like this little nightclub. I have no idea what it's called or where it was. We sound checked, uh, which gave me the opportunity to run a couple of things, and we did the show, and she liked it. So then we went to Jamaica and and then came back and did one. I think we only did one more show after that, which was Kenwood House, which is Hampstead Heath, a sort of balmy, hot August night open air with uh, everybody sitting there, you know, with picnics and it's about 5,000 people. It's probably the biggest gig I've done, I guess. And I enjoyed that. And then we were all set to do a a tour at the end of the year, like a three-month tour, and rehearsals were going to start in about 10 days' time at her house in Devon. And then I got a phone call a week before from her husband, who was a manager, saying that the MD uh, had left the band and they got a new MD in and he was bringing in his own musicians. So, sorry, bye, gone. So, uh, yeah, that, that wasn't so good. One record I'm proud of, I did, um, there's a, there's, they're still playing now, a, a British rock band called FM. And they were kind of like, I guess, in the 80s, a Brit, sort of British Bon Jovi. And the singer from that band, uh, dear friend Steve Overland, who's kind of in the sort of Paul Rogers camp, he, uh, FM split and he wanted to do something different and we were sort of more, do something more beatly, crowded house kind of vibe and he, he did a solo record and I did that. And that album is still out there on the internet somewhere called Brass Monkey and the band was called So, which was Steve's initials, S-O. And um, off the back of that, uh, I ended up playing on a Joe Cocker record because the producer of Steve's record shared a house with, I think his name's Gary Hughes, who was producing and written, I think, also one track on this Joe Cocker album. And he wanted a sort of bluesy, some bluesy guitar playing and couldn't find, you know, get hold of the person that he wanted. 
So his friend who he shared a house with said, well, I'm working with this guy, you know, we're doing this album. He's could do bluesy stuff. You know, why don't you give him a call? So a few weeks later, I got this call saying, Hey, my name's Gary. I'm up at Psalm studios. We're doing this track with Joe Cocker. Can you come now? So yeah, drop everything. So I drove up to Psalm studios and set all my gear up, which looking back was completely inappropriate equipment. I mean, it was my, I didn't really have any recording equipment. It was a, you know, big, head and uh, i was using revere amps in those days it's like 100 watt knucklehead and a 4 by 12 and a rack with a 2290 it's all this i could see the guy looking at me like we're just doing a little bluesy recording here <laughs> you know what you brought a stadium uh, rig in and we played through the track you had to listen through gary says right let's play the rhythm parts you know so uh here's the chord chart so that's all good i'm doing that then his phone goes so he picks up the phone and he's saying to whoever the guy on the phone is, oh, well, yeah, yeah, Joe really wanted Eric, but haven't been able to get a hold of him, you know. Oh, right, he's out of the country, is he? Okay. All right, well, look, don't worry. I've got things sorted now, but I really appreciate the call back. So I was sitting there with my coffee going, does he mean Eric? So my face must have said it all. So he turned, he looked at me and he said, um, you shouldn't really have heard that, should you? I said, no. Are you talking about who I think you're talking about? He said, yeah, he said, uh, Joe wanted Eric to play on this track, but I've left messages everywhere all week and he's not got back to me. And that was his manager to say that he's out of the country. Really sorry. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, no pressure then. Well, let's just crack on. So when we got to the solo, he said, right, you're going to have one go at this, basically. What I want is a performance. We're not going to do any drop-ins. I might give you two. I might give you two attempts, but that's it. And if it doesn't work, then we'll just move on. Actually, he wasn't very friendly, if I'm honest. I hope he doesn't hear this. But sorry, Gary, you weren't particularly welcoming, I have to say. But then I guess you wanted Eric Clapton, and I definitely wasn't him. So so I did the solo, and he went, hmm. So I said, look, can I have another pass at it? He went, yeah, okay. So we did another pass. And that was it. Right, we'll move on. Uh, we need some acoustic on the chorus. Okay, so we did that. We pretty much finished. And then I said to him, look, could I have another go at the solo? By that time, he warmed up a little. So he said, okay. But still no drop-ins, nothing. He didn't want any of that. He just wanted a, a performance. So I did it, and he let me have two goes at that. And that was it. We shook hands. Send your invoice here. Thank you very much. Bye. Sometime later, I have no idea how long now, you know, the album got released, uh, and I uh, rushed to probably Our Price Records or somewhere and bought the CD, all excited, you know, <laughs> I'm on a CD. And when I looked at the credits for the track... It's like I'm listed, but also is a guy called Matt Backer, who's plays with ABC. I think this is his current gig, but he's, you know, if you Google him, he's got an incredible career and he's a you know, lovely guy, a lovely player. And he, on guitar, both him and I, I'm like, well, there was no other guitar player when I did that thing. So I'm thinking the worst, you know, I've been wiped. So I put the CD on and no, I'm not. I am on it. So I called Matt and said, hey, mate, you know, blah, 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 Joe Cocker record. He went, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got a call to to come in and do that. Uh, he wasn't that enamoured with what you'd done, you know, so basically wanted to replace it. That's, look, fair enough. But apparently what happened when they came to choose, they played both solos to Joe and Joe chose mine. But, uh, you know, if, you, if I listen to it now, I think it's awful. I, have to, I, have to, I, don't, I don't like it. It's the wrong sounds, the wrong approach, wrong tone. And I don't think Gary never liked it because it's so mixed, so... So quietly. Yeah, but for me, more than playing on the Joe Cocker record was being on the credits of an album with Michael Landau because yeah. half of the record was done in L.A. 
and half of the record was done at Metropolis, I think, and, and Psalm over here with a different crew, you know, different musicians. And just to have my name, you go on Wikipedia and you look at the list of personnel on that record, I'm in a list with, I think Dean Parks might be on it too. I mean, it's just like this list. And there, Mike Landau is, you know, is my pretty much one of my, if not my favourite guitar player these days. And um, to be on the same record as him was is some is for me is a you know is a big deal. Yeah, I saw him. I went to his Nam shows this January. Uh, yeah, he's using one of our amps, and he's a funny guy. He's got a great sense of humour, and he's just yeah, incredible guitar player. You've worked for a few different manufacturers in your career. You've worked for Fender. Korg and Line 6, and now you're working for Sir Guitars. How did you end up working at Sir Guitars? I'd heard, I, th- I forget who, but somebody said that Sir were looking for somebody to look after their business in Europe. Why don't you check it out? So I, I called my old friend and colleague from Line 6, Steve Gray, who, who's one of the, the directors at Guitar Guitar, and he was the guy that was the purchaser for Sir Guitars, and said, uh, can you chuck my name in the hat, which he did. And it took a year of negotiating with the the then management of the company. I think I'd made the first contact June, I think it was about June 2013. So it was almost a year of emailing and phone calls and uh, what would you do with this and blah, blah, blah. I went over to the factory in January 2014 to meet the, the team and uh, look around Still didn't get offered a job, and it's yeah, it's a strange thing. And then um, eventually got got the email. So, so I've been with the company yeah since eight, April first of April twenty fourteen as European sales manager. But really, it's not. It's it's a bit of everything, you know. And that's the thing I love. I do. I'm so lucky that I have a job that uh, I love. And I'm not just saying this in case my boss listens to it. It's not. I'm not just like a, you know, a sales guy or a rep. But um, I go out and. You know, I haven't done anything for a while now, but, you know, I used to do a bit of playing, a bit of demonstrating, a bit of videos. I do product specialists. I can do training. Some of our distributors obviously have reps, and I go and train their reps. Um, I look after some of the artists. I have a lockup in the UK, not far from where I live, which has got flight case amplifiers and a bunch of guitars. So if any of our artists are in the country, I can take stuff to them. Um, you know, I've gone out and done clinic tours last year with Pete Thorne. We did Europe, and then we did a month across Asia. I mean, that was for the whole of December. Pete and I travelled to Japan, uh, Taiwan, Singapore, Thailand, Indonesia, Korea, and Australia, which was uh, really hard work, hard to be away from home for such a long time, but good fun. Yeah, there's lots of different aspects. You know, I'm I'm involved now in in the product development meetings and in the marketing meetings. I mean, it's, it's all aspects. It's not just a sales gig. And yeah, so at the end of 2018, I was made international sales manager. They made some changes. So now I look after all of their business outside of America. It's, you know, busy because it's, it's every, all of Europe and Asia. It's, it's, uh, you know, a lot of work, but um, I'm very proud of the, the products we make. And, you know, I'm not on here to do an advert, but if I didn't work for Sir. I think I'd, I'd play one. You know, I have a, I have a couple. Obviously, I guess you'd expect I would, but I use them out of choice. You know, I think uh, they're fine instruments and amplify all the backline I use and would use if I didn't work for the company. It's time for a cheeky reminder. If you're enjoying today's episode, please do share it with your friends and family and share it on social media and help us get the word out. And now, it's time for the final five. 
If you were to recommend one album or song, old or new, that you feel everybody should listen to at least once in their lifetime, what would it be and why? An album that uh, I never seem to get tired of. Um, whenever it comes up on random on shuffle on my iPod, you know, it, it stays on. And quite often I just put the album from start to finish and I never, it just doesn't get old for me. And that's um, The Colour of Spring by Talk Talk. It doesn't date. The production, although it is 80s, I think the production is so, in places, so dry as sticks. It, you know, it's so dry. It's not that big 80s, huge reverb thing. And other places on the record, it is. Mark Hollis's vocals are just heart-wrenching. And as far as song, I did think, I thought I'd be cheeky and try and grab an album and a song. And I'd say song for me, I always seem to go back to Life on Mars. I think such a soundtrack to my life, uh, yeah. David Bowie, and somebody who, when he the news came out that he died, I genuinely cried. What artists and albums are you currently listening to? Two things that I'm listening to are Mike Landau's Liquid, Liquid Quartet live record, Life from the Baked Potato, because it's you know he's amazing on it. And the other one's actually just come out, which is a guitar player who uh, I think is really, really good, Scott McEwen, this English guy, lives down on the South Coast and works in, um, he's got his own thing going. And this, this album is called Super Jam. And I think Paul Stacey's on a couple of tracks. It's live in a pub in Bournemouth, I think, or Dorset or somewhere. And Jeremy Stacey's on drums and there's a horn section and it's really kick-ass. You know, it's really foot-tapping, it's funky. Uh, Scott plays great on it Paul plays great on it that's the most recent thing because it's literally just come out so that's getting rotation for me Name a musician or artist who has had a profound effect on you and why uh, it's, it's either going to be Mick Ronson or, or Jimmy Page Why Mick Ronson? And Mick Ronson I would probably put above Jimmy Page because he was the guy that got me started you know he was he was my, my guy and from the moment I heard whether it was Gene Genie when I was 10 years old or, or the opening calls to Ziggy Stardust or probably his guitar solo on Moon Age Daydream on the Ziggy Stardust album. I can still, I still have vivid memories now of lying on the floor in my living room with my, you know, living with my parents, obviously as a child, uh, with headphones on, looking at the, the Ziggy Stardust album cover where it says to be played at maximum volume and listening to Moon Age Daydream and closing my eyes and I, picturing myself playing that solo i just thought mick ronson had it all he was a good looking guy he had great chemistry with bowie i'd love that strip les paul his tone that half cocked wah thing tracks like the prettiest star that opening guitar motif the tone uh his guitar playing on time on well actually his guitar playing on the whole of the aladdin sane album um so for me, yeah, I guess Mick Ronson slash David Bowie, I guess a bit, but yeah, Mick Ronson. But but I think it was Jimmy Page that got me more into uh, guitar parts, the way he layered and different sounds and soloing. If it was possible for you to speak to your younger self when you were first setting out on your music career, what advice would you give to your younger self now? Believe in yourself because I don't think I did. Um, I think I've always suffered from imposter syndrome a lot through my life, you know, not, not just in terms of playing, but in terms of jobs as well sometimes, you know, where having 
you know, it's, it's confidence. What is it they say about singing? It's 80% confidence, you know, 20% technique. And, and I think the same goes, you know, if you've got, you're on stage and you've got that swagger and you've got that belief. And I don't think, I think, yeah, I'd say to myself, you should have left home earlier. I think it would have been good to, to have left in my very early 20s and got out and stood on my own two feet and maybe, maybe go and live in a house with a bunch of other musicians and do that that thing. And once you get a job and then you get a money and then, you know, you buy a car and you can't imagine being without a car or being able to buy a pair of jeans or whatever it is, you know, or the new guitar that you want even. Final question. Of all the times over the years you've performed, can you tell us the one gig that is the most memorable? I mean, I mentioned the Elkie Brooks gig. Um, and I think that stands out just because it was the, the biggest gig I'd done at that time in my life. But it didn't have the profound effect on me that playing the first headline gig, the, the originals band that I was in in the 80s, which was the the, the one that Steve Wilson joined, uh, which was called Pride of Passion. We were kind of in that prog scene. The bass player, the original bass player and keyboard player were ex Marillion members who, who you know, Dismanit, Brian Jellyman, who were involved in the writing on the first script Marillion album. And, and for whatever reasons, they left the band prior to them signing to EMI. But Diz was the bass player. Uh, by the time we got to the marquee, Brian had left and we were a four piece female vocal. Uh, Deborah on vocals, Grant on drums, Diz on bass, myself uh, on guitar. And we'd done a couple of support slots with a band called Solstice, who really, really lovely people. They they gave us a double support slot with them, and the management liked us, and they gave us a headline. And I can remember the old mar- marquee in Wardle Street, the, the dressing room door opened onto the stage, and I can remember sort of opening the door a little bit, looking through the little gap and seeing... God, there's quite a lot of people out there. You know, we weren't expect- we were expecting maybe a hundred, you know, just friends really, 150. Anyway, time to go on, roll the intro music, and we opened the door and we walked on stage, and it was it wasn't sold out, but it wasn't far off it either. And the the crowd, the noise, well, and those people had come to see us. You know, we weren't supporting anybody, they paid their money to come and see us, and it was yeah, the, amazing. Amazing time, great time, and and uh, you know memories like that, you know, will stay with you forever. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. Nigel, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure, and of course, a big thank you to you, our listeners. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please do share it on social media with your friends and family. Now, next week, we've got a really special episode coming up for you where I'm joined by singer-songwriter Lee Wilding from the band The Far North. Lee will be joining us to discuss their debut album, Songs for Gentle Souls, which is released on the 20th of November. And if we're really nice to him, he might even let me play a couple of tracks from the album. Take care, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>